Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am Amanda Farmer, Strata Lawyer and your podcast host. It is great to be here with you once again this week. Some of us are easing into or about to ease into some school holidays. That's definitely what I am preparing for at the time I'm recording this. Looking forward to enjoying a couple of weeks downtime, taking some time off enjoying those parts of our city that we weren't able to enjoy the last school holidays, restrictions easing around our country at the moment, which is really great news. And I hope that some of you too, perhaps with young families, will be enjoying your family time together. This week on the podcast, I am reacquainting you with a past episode quite a past episode actually, way, way back in episode number 29. I interviewed one of my most favourite people in Strata, Kathy Sherry. Many of you I know will have come across Kathy, will know Kathy, have had the privilege of hearing her speak on all things Strata Law. I first spoke to Kathy for the podcast in this episode number 29 back in September 2016. Wow, years ago now. That was my first year of podcasting. And I've decided to bring this episode back to you today because even though almost four years has passed, the issues that Kathy covers for us in this chat are still so very relevant. We are talking about the incredibly unusual and very significant power that our strata law gives to private citizens when it comes to regulating the activities of other private citizens. Very rare that people who sit outside of our government should have the kind of powers that we see strata owners holding, strata committee members. And Kathy has devoted much of her career to exploring this power in the context of property law. You'll hear Kathy in this episode mention her book, which was just a few months away from publication at the time we were chatting, but since then has been cited by the Privy Council in a case called O'Connor. And I will put the link to that case in the show notes so you can go and check it out. A very interesting case about bylaws regulating short-term letting in a community in the Turks and Caicos Islands, a Caribbean jurisdiction that actually copied our New South Wales strata legislation. So feel free to take a trip down that rabbit hole if you like. Kathy's book is called Strata Title Property Rights, Private Governance of Multi-Owned Properties. I'll pop the link to that in the notes as well. If you haven't come across Kathy before, she is a leading Australian expert on strata and community title, providing advice to government as well as the private sector on the complexities of collectively owned property. 
Her research focuses on the social implications of private communities, as well as optimal planning for children. And Kathy has a special interest in urban farming and the challenges of providing growing space in high-density cities. We heard from Kathy at our annual conference for the Australian College of Strata Lawyers earlier this year in 2020, when she was talking about the importance of green spaces in our urban areas. Now, when I was chatting to Kathy back in 2016, it was just about a month before our Strata Schemes Management Act of 2015, our New South Wales legislation was due to commence. So you'll hear Kathy and I talk a little bit about that and the changes that we were expecting with the introduction of a new section in our legislation, restricting a little more the power to make bylaws. And Kathy makes a few predictions about that that have turned out to be quite accurate, unsurprisingly. And I do believe this discussion is so relevant right now when many of you are reaching out to me wanting to understand the impact of and the reasons for the recent pet decisions, the pet cases that have come out of New South Wales from our NCAT appeal panel. Kathy definitely talks about pets in this episode and I do believe you're going to get an excellent insight into just how broad our bylawmaking power is, particularly in New South Wales. So sit back and relax Enjoy revisiting my chat with Kathy Sherry. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you very much, Amanda. Now, Kathy, I am very much looking forward to your book, as I know many of us in the sector are. And I know from chatting with you that a lot of the book focuses on strata bylaws. And I want to ask you today why are strata bylaws such a hot topic for you as a researcher and an academic in this area? Well, strata bylaws for me are a hot topic because they're essentially a form of private legislation and they can be very, very intrusive into people's lives. They often aren't because people use them wisely, but the way our legislation is drafted, they have the potential to be so. So, I first became interested in strata when I was working in a law firm in Newcastle and they were doing a lot of redevelopment around Newcastle Harbour and I was reading the bylaws. I'd you know, taught property law for many years, but never really had much to do with strata. And I was reading the bylaws for large developments and rather perplexed by the idea that they could tell people what colour their blinds could be <laughs> and how fat their pet could be. <laughs> I remember saying to the partner, you know, sort of saying, this is extraordinary. How can they tell you how fat your pet can be? To which she'd say, Kathy, could you just go and do the contracts and stop wringing your hands over the bylaws? <laughs> um, and so when I went back to academia, I thought, well, this seems like a really interesting area. And I'd always, always had a kind of fascination with master plan communities as well. So I started to look at it. And essentially, it's bylaws that I find most most tr potentially troubling about strata because it is a mechanism by which the government has given private citizens the power to write laws for their neighbours. And those that power can be used very well and it potentially, however, can be used very badly. The simple fact is private citizens like government can't always be trusted to do the right thing by other people. People, not necessarily also because people are being abusive, but because it's very easy for people to convince themselves that exactly what is right for them is the right option for everyone. 
everyone. And we know that that often isn't the case. And it seems to me that from my research, I don't think the government, any governments in Australia, with the possible exception of the Victorian government that um, created their 2006 Act, I don't think any state legislature in Australia actually understands the power that they have given to people um, via bylaws. Mm. Just for my own interest, indulge me. What is it about the Victorian 2006 Act that you think they did well when it comes to bylaws? The Victorian 2006 Act stands out as the only act in Australia that makes a very clear distinction between the power to write bylaws for private lots and the power to write bylaws for common property. And that should be blindingly obvious that you don't give people the same power to write laws for collectively shared property as you do for private lot property. The only rationale for being able to regulate someone's private home is if what they are doing inside their home is disturbing other people. And yet that is completely absent from strata acts. So, for example, in New South Wales, we've always had a bylaw making power that allows people to make bylaws with respect to the use or enjoyment of a lot or common property. Mm -hmm. And the example I always give to people is a bylaw banning people eating meat in their own apartment is irrefutably a valid bylaw. Yes, because it is a bylaw that relates to the use or enjoyment of a lot or common property. And incidentally, in India, it's actually not uncommon to write bylaws banning people eating meat because it's a way of restricting buildings to Hindu-only residents. But the New South Wales Act, we have a new provision that says bylaws can't be harsh, unconscionable or unjust. So that's an improvement. I think it doesn't go far enough because it's a very high bar. But we, we really haven't got our head around what, what I would say is, I mean, it's an absolutely fundamental principle in all liberal democracies, and that is the concept of negative liberty, that if we're not actually harming other people, we shouldn't be regulated by law. It's the basis of all, all of our legislation, ordinary legislation works on that basis. The government is not entitled to regulate what we do in the privacy of our own home if we're not hurting anyone else or disturbing anyone else. And there's absolutely absolutely no reason for a strata scheme to be any different. If anything, the restrictions on uh, private citizens making laws should be greater than the restrictions on government because government can only, there's all sorts of public law that guides the way in which government makes legislation. Strata schemes, quite obviously, individual owners are entitled to act in their own interests. That's legitimate. You're, you're required to, you know, there's no requirement that you act in other people's interests when you vote as a member of a owner's corporation. So, Strictly speaking, we should have much stricter controls on a body corporate's power to write bylaws. But with the exception of Victoria, all states acts basically just give blanket powers to write bylaws in relation to private homes and also common property. Mm. And where are the courts in all of this, at least in New South Wales? Are they running with this? Are they interpreting the law this broadly? Well, yes, they are. In New South Wales, they are. Okay, So, Balkan, the recent Victorian decision on the Watergate apartment is the only superior court decision where a Australian state court has really attempted to limit a body corporate's bylaw making power. So, Balkan really stands out as really being quite different, where Justice Reardon said, we really have to look at parliamentary intention and it cannot be the case that parliament intended to empower owners' corporations to have this much power over private lots. With all due respect to Justice Reid, I think it's entirely possible that Parliament did intend that (laughs) because developers drive a lot of strata legislation and developers want flexibility when it comes to development and that means broad bylaw making powers. I think the 
Victorian Parliament that enacted their new Act quite possibly did intend, well, very clearly did intend to restrict owners' corporations' powers because in Victoria they only have very limited powers in relation to private lots and they only have powers in relation to a list of matters in Schedule 1 as opposed to all other state Acts that say it's just a very broad power and it has to relate to a lot of common property. That's no limit at all, Mm. really. Like I said, a bylaw banning someone eating meat is a bylaw that relates to a lot. The problem is that Australian judges, all other, with the exception of Justice Reardon, Australian courts have taken a very hands-off approach. So New South Wales is a classic example where courts have repeatedly said there's nothing in the nature of a bylaw that of itself limits the content of a bylaw. And the real problem, and this is the argument in my book, is that courts have failed to recognise that bylaws are simply restrictive and positive covenants on freehold land. They're actually property law. So the reason why we need strata legislation is because we can only have restrictive covenants on freehold land. An obligation to pay for maintenance is a positive covenant. So if you're going to build a high-rise building and sell people freehold fees simple, you have to get somehow get around that prohibition on imposing positive obligations to pay money on freehold titles. And that's what the legislation does in levies. So that's why we needed the legislation. But courts have really not made that connection between bylaws and restrictive covenants. They are simply an obligation or a restriction that's imposed on a freehold title. Courts have adjudicated on those for centuries. So, easements and covenants, although the law is pretty obscure and most people wish they'd never been subjected to it at law school, (laughs) what courts are doing when they adjudicate on easements and covenants, so the four criteria for a valid easement in re-Ellenborough Park, and I apologise to those listeners who are not lawyers, this is maybe completely incomprehensible. No, I'm sure Um, they're very, very engaged. <laughs> courts don't let you create any easement you want. There are only certain kinds of things that can be a valid easement. So if I agreed with you that you would be able to grow veggies in my back garden in good rainfall years and you could hold corporate parties in bad rainfall years, we can agree that between ourselves as a matter of contract law. That's fine. That's valid. We can't actually turn that into a property right that's going to bind people who might own our land in the future. Because it's not – reason I won't go into it. It's not a valid lease. It's not a valid easement. It's not a valid restrictive covenant. But the reason why law does that is because what works between you and me may not work for people in the future. But if we manage to turn it into a binding right in relation to property, people in the future are going to be stuck with it. And so that makes freehold land – potentially makes freehold land very uneconomic and it reduces the social utility of land because it's not just that you and I can do it. It's that everyone in the community community can make those agreements. And there's no limit to the number of agreements that could affect freehold land. Courts disallow those kind of things, which means that when we come to buy a freehold title, we buy a house in the suburbs, we don't really need to worry about what kind of agreements people who owned it in the past might have made. None of them are going to affect us, with the small exception of restrictive covenants, but they're fairly limited. And they're limited because courts have intentionally limited them. Strata bylaws just blow away those limits because bylaws can be positive as well as restrictive and because courts have just taken a completely ahistoric hands-off approach to them. If people voluntarily agree them, they're valid. But we know that people voluntarily agree things that harm other people and even if well-intentioned originally can turn out to be inefficient and problematic. And although there are voting mechanisms to get rid of them in strata schemes, as probably most people in strata land know, sometimes it is much, much easier to create a bylaw than to get rid of one. 
Yes, indeed. So getting people to agree to get rid of a bylaw that they've already had can sometimes be much harder than to create one in the first place. Mm. Well, with all of that in mind, Cathy, what do you suggest communities should be doing when they're making bylaws? How do they adopt a good set of bylaws or rules? I think the most important thing is to use a kind of a um, measure of reasonableness. Is it reasonable? And honestly, I think that most communities are already doing that. So the astounding thing in Australia, I mean, I'll give you an example that's maybe more realistic than the meat-eating example, (laughs) smoking. It has always been irrefutably possible for owners' corporations to ban smoking inside people's lots, anywhere inside someone's home, irrespective of whether there is any smoke drift. So I can't make this clear enough. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can ban people smoking in their own home and it, you don't have to prove that smoke is affecting other people. Yep, That's a, I it's agree. a valid violence. However, most communities actually hesitate to do that, even when there's smoke drift and they really would have good reason for banning smoking. And the reason why they do that is because instinctively, irrespective of how badly the strata acts are drafted in this regard, instinctively people know, you know, it isn't kind of reasonable to be regulating what people do in their own home. That's intrusive and maybe we shouldn't be doing that. So I think instinctively most schemes actually adopt pretty good bylaws. They have an innate sense of what proper law should be and they actually act in accordance with that. So I think most communities are actually relatively reluctant to enact too many bylaws, particularly bylaws that are very intrusive into people's private lives. Overall in Australia, most buildings are doing really well. I mean, the simple fact is we have way less litigation in relation to strata than statistically should be the case. Yes. So when you look at the tribunals, the vast work of tribunals is actually in relation to residential tenancies. So when you look at the number of disputes in tribunals relative to the number of strata schemes, it's actually relatively low. So I think most buildings are doing pretty well. The one thing that, I mean, I personally think we've made a mistake in relation to is pets. That is, I mean, in accordance with what I was saying before about negative liberty, I don't think anyone should be able to ban their neighbour keeping a pet unless it's actually affecting people in some meaningful way. And I think that some schemes, some pet bylaws actually create problems. So, I'll give you an example. A lot of them are just irrational. So, banning pets based on weight is just ludicrous. Yes, and is going to I see that dispute. a lot. Yes. Because anyone with, you know, a modicum, I mean, look, I don't own a dog and I'm not Actually, I'm not interested in owning a dog. So none of these arguments are based on because I'm a dog person and I love dogs and I don't think people, you know, everyone should have a dog. It's got nothing to do with that. You only have to have a modicum of familiarity with dogs to know that a Labrador is likely to bark a lot less than a Fox Terrier. So if you write bylaws based on pet weight, you're basically saying people can keep small yappy dogs, but they can't keep large quiet dogs. The question of whether someone should keep a large dog in an apartment is none of the neighbor's business. So one of the things that I think people get very confused about. They get everything kind of a bit mixed up and they get agitated about stuff that really is none of their business. The question of whether your neighbours are keeping a dog cruelly or in appropriate circumstances is a question for the RSPCA. Mm. So I live in high density, but I don't live in strata. My neighbours have dogs. They keep their dogs in relatively small courtyards. It's none of my business that they do so. It's not my job to police how my neighbours keep their animals unless how they're keeping an animal is bordering on cruelty that I should report to the RSPCA or or the police. Strata schemes are exactly the same. It's none of your business if a neighbour keeps a Labrador in their apartment and you just shouldn't be worrying about it. It seems to me that the only basis on which people should be banning pets is if a particular pet is actually causing a problem. So if a pet is barking up and out, I 
don't you know, have any hesitation in saying that, that tribunals should be making orders for dogs to be removed if they're barking and they are disturbing people. But if a dog isn't barking and if all you have to do is occasionally share a lift with a dog, well, that's what co-owning property means. It's not going to kill you. You have to walk past dogs on the footpath. You've got to get in the lift with the dog deal with it. And the irony with strata bylaws, and I give this example, is when it comes to cats, strata schemes can ban a cat that never leaves somebody's apartment mm. and has no effect on anyone else. But there is not a thing that they can do about every feline in the neighbourhood lounging around the external common property, sunning themselves in the garden, doing other less picturesque things that cats do. Because under the Companion Animals Act, you are required to just tolerate that. Mm. It's a pretty high bar before you can start complaining about someone else's cat. You have to tolerate cats walking across your garden. You have to tolerate cats using your garden, although it is, you know, it's not the owner of the cat's garden. You simply can't complain. That's part of living in a community. You don't have to tolerate dogs barking at 3am or dogs coming into your yard. But there are certain things that when you live in a community, you're required to tolerate. So I think it's absolutely ironic that a strata scheme can ban someone keeping a cat that never leaves their apartment, but they can have cats all over their garden and there's nothing they can do about it. Mm. And is that because what's in the Companions Animals Act that permits that to happen with cats and not dogs? There's a definition of nuisance cats and nuisance dogs. So nuisance dogs are only a nuisance if they habitually defecate or habitually jump up on people. So it's a high bar. You know, habitually jump up on someone makes a dog a nuisance dog. That you had to walk past it on the footpath or it jumped up on you once in a park doesn't make a dog a nuisance dog. Cats are basically, if they're in your yard, they're not a nuisance cat. I mean, if they were continually yowling at night or coming into your... I mean, you can certainly exclude a cat from your house, but the bar is relatively high. Off the top of my head, it's Section 31 of the Companion Animals Act in New South Wales, that is. But most states say the same thing. And the, the basis of the legislation is simply negative liberty. That is, if you're not harming someone else in any meaningful way, then you cannot be regulated. And when we live in a community, we just have to tolerate that people affect us. And I think that one of the risks in strata schemes is that because we have given people the capacity to regulate others, they then start to worry about stuff that if they didn't live in a strata property, they just wouldn't worry about. So, so as I said, I live in high density. I can hear my neighbours' kids. I can hear their, their pets. I can hear people on the street. I can hear kids bouncing balls. I just don't worry about it because I don't have any power to regulate it. Mm. I just accept that's part of living in a very high density area of Sydney. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. And you do see, at least from my perspective as a lawyer, dealing with all different types of communities in different situations, how differently they operate and how differently they apply those powers, call it. And some, as you said, do so quite reasonably and flexibly and others seem to take to their positions wholeheartedly and attempt to regulate wherever and whenever they can, which uh, can lead to some sticky situations. Regulation and can actually cause more disputes. I mean, I'm not oh, denying yeah. strata schemes need bylaws. You live in high density. It makes sense to have bylaws. No problem with that. Yeah. But bylaws should be used sensibly and with a certain level of reservation and an acceptance that people will do things that affect you and you should be very, very cautious about regulating somebody else's private home. Mm, indeed. Well, I can't wait to get stuck into your book, Cathy, um, when that comes out. Uh, it's always fascinating talking to you and we traverse all areas of strata law uh, and I'm sure our listeners are enjoying that treat as well. Now, talking of books, what books have had the greatest impact on you and why? Uh, without a doubt, Evan McKenzie's book, Privatopia. Yes. So, Evan is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago at Illinois. 
and he is also a lawyer. And he wrote a really influential book called Privatopia back in the 1990s. And he's also written more recently a book called Beyond Privatopia. And the reason why it's so interesting is we copied a lot of our developments from America. So there is a misunderstanding that Australia invented strata. We didn't. <laughs> Germany had a strata act at least 10 years before us. The American condominium legislation came into force around the same time as ours. But America has actually had private community. So what we would call community title in New South Wales, what's been called cluster title or just body corporate communities in Queensland, for example, you know, you flattened out master plan community, which might have apartments in it as well. It's exactly the same legal structure and as apartment building. That is, you have individually owned lots and you have collectively owned common property and you have a governing body made up of owners. In community title, it could be the parks, the roads, the sewerage the infrastructure. So, they're the kind of communities I'm talking about. America's had those communities since the 19th century because of a difference in their property law. Positive covenants can run with freehold land. So, they have been able to impose obligations on freehold owners to pay for maintenance, which meant it was worthwhile for developers to provide private facilities. So, the kind of private communities that have a clubhouse, a pool, private roads um, and services and a governing body, they've existed in America since the 19th century. Mm. So, America has had over a century of experience with these communities, of regulating them. America also, of course, is kind of fascinating in a way that Australia isn't. That desire to secede from the rest of society, <laughs> I mean, it goes back to the founding, the Pilgrim Fathers. I mean, when they left England, it was to set out to create their own community free of the oppressive powers of England and to live in accordance with their own religious laws. So, America's always had this very strong tradition of sort of private communities wanting to break away from mainstream society. So, it's fascinating. But Evan's book looks at the rise of private communities and in particular the way in which they were not driven by a desire of people to necessarily live in private communities, but driven by developers who wanted rising land prices, developers wanting to still make as much money, can't afford to provide people with as as large private lots as they could in the past. So, how do we provide people with those kind of suburban facilities with smaller blocks of land? Uh, we'll do it through a homeowner association. So, we'll give people smaller individual titles and we will have collectively owned common property. Governments loved it and we're seeing this in Australia, particularly in Queensland, northern New South Wales, because it allows government to pass off infrastructure costs, not just initial costs, but costs in perpetuity onto private citizens. So, Local governments don't have to pay for sewerage, don't have to pay for roads, don't have to pay for other facilities yep. because it's being provided by the developer and it's going to be owned by the private community, by the body corporate, and they will be paying for it forever. So, there are a lot of pressures for governments to prefer these communities, but what Evan's books are about is no one anticipated what it really meant to expect private citizens to run these communities and to give private citizens those powers over their neighbours. So, it's sometimes referred to as the fourth tier of government in Australia. So, after federal, state, local government, these are a form of mini-government. And America's been grappling with this for years. So, what does it mean for private citizens basically to be operating as governance? And when you're talking about a six-lot strata scheme, you know, we never really needed to worry about it. But we're now seeing private communities that have 3,000 residents. Yep. So, Jackson's Landing down in um, Piermont, in Piermont mm. has 22 strata schemes and 3,000 residents. Yep. There are master plan communities in the all over the Gold Coast in Melbourne that have hundreds and thousands of people. So, when you give private citizens the power to run those communities, it's essentially the power of a small local government. Mm. And 
that's an enormous expectation of private citizens. We're relying on volunteers, yes. who some of them are fantastic, some of whom maybe are not up to the task. Running a large high-rise, that's why we end up having to rely on strata managers and building managers. Because running a large high-rise building is like running a small business yes. or a medium-sized business, to be honest. And as you say, these people are volunteers and they're also people completely lacking in experience and possibly education in the sector. Yep, absolutely. And they're being – I mean, Evan's argument is the government is basically asking people to do the government's job for it. So, just, you know, offloading things on private citizens, which they probably shouldn't be asked to do. And I think that's certainly true in master plan communities where you've got privatised parks, roads – it isn't, and you know, in a lot of master plan communities, very unfairly, well, rightly public access, but very unfairly, the private community is paying entirely for that land. Oh, yeah. They're paying insurance. That isn't right. And so we need to think really critically about that, and particularly with master plan communities, because they are optional. Strata title is not optional in high rise buildings. We have to have it, and it's a very good thing. Master planned estates, they are optional. They could be done as ordinary residential subdivisions with public parks and no governing body at all. Yes. And we need to think very critically about whether we keep rolling them out. Mm, fascinating. Well, I'll make sure that the details of Evan's book are in the show notes under this episode on the website so that our listeners can get stuck into that uh, if they'd like to. Now, Kathy, before we wrap up, anything else you want to add and how do our listeners find out more about you? Uh, well, the other thing I would quickly add is the other book that is fabulous is a book called High Life by Matthew Lasner, which if you're more interested in apartments, that's a fascinating book. So, I can give you the details of that one as well. Great. You can find out about me on the UNSW Law website. I have a webpage. It's got the details of my publications there. Uh, I'll people, put that in the uh, show notes as well. Yeah, so people can find out. And UNSW is a site of a, a lot of strata research. So in the law faculty and also in the faculty of the built environment, it's something that academics are very interested in. Yes, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today, Cathy. I think that's been a fabulous chat that I know uh, I've got a lot out of and I'm sure many of our listeners will too and we'd love to have you back sometime. As I said, I'm looking forward to that book and I think everybody should keep their eye out for it. I might do a bit of a, a promo on the website for you when that comes out so everyone knows where they can get it. Thank you. That would be great. Wonderful. Thanks, Cathy. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?